Well, first, I think um, this was not a new story to me. Um, I watched this for the first time like years ago, but um, I grew up reading about civil rights and kind of reading about the stuff that wasn't taught in schools, stories about, you know, murders like Emmett Till and um, this one specifically were not new to me, but I did have the same um, experience that you had where I feel like I got to see the humanity of the people that were left behind. Spike is one of the greatest documentary filmmakers of all time. And I would, I would say that you could put Four Little Girls, When the Levees Broke, up against any one of his films, and you could make the case that it, it might be his best film. podcast directed by so we're slowly working our way through spike lee this month and we are going to talk about four little girls and he got game uh, and hopefully you will have heard from our experts um, you'll have heard from randy wilkins uh, who is an emmy award-winning director cinematographer and editor who's worked with spike lee before and uh kylan stewart who is an up-and-coming filmmaker who uh, view Spike Lee as one of their biggest influences. So, Mike, now we are at, uh, I guess, kind of a movie when we were planning this, you were dreading a bit. Uh, we're going into the documentary. <laughs> yes. We're going to Four Little Girls. So, I mean, this is, I mean, there's no way around it. This is really heavy stuff, right? I mean, this is the, the documentary about four little girls who were murdered by racists. Church were, churches were bombed and these and these girls died. So this is... Not something that's like, oh, some light viewing for the afternoon. Like, you know, it's not a long movie, but it is a lot to go through as you're watching. Because it's essentially, I mean, this is, a, this is a problem with me sometimes for documentaries about subjects like this. Is sometimes it does feel like I shouldn't be privy to this. This emotion, this trauma. And you're essentially making these poor people relive the worst moment of their life. Like, in front of you. So let's put a camera in your face. And let's make you relive this. And it kind of opens with them talking about their daughters and these girls who were taken from them at this young age. And it was, I was watching this, I like, I knew going in that this was going to be tough to watch. And like, most of it, you're like, this is tough. Okay, I can handle this. And then there's a scene later in the movie where one of these people finally just breaks down. And I was like, I like kind of like lean back from the screen. Like you talked about when you're watching a 3d movie. Like I was just like, I can't get far enough away from this. Like it's an important story to tell, but it does feel like you are an interloper, especially as a white person watching this, like, you know, watching black pain. It's like, we have a lot of that in narrative film already. And to see this thing that really happened, like it was really uncomfortable. It was probably the most uncomfortable watch I've had for this podcast for sure. So you're saying I'm right then? I was right to. I mean, no. Want I would, to skip I, this. Why would I ever say experience. that? No, not on not when you're recording. I also like how you, uh, <laughs> you, you know, present yourself as this uh, greatly uh, empathetic man uh, who's who's right there with yep. the, the emotions on display. <laughs> and me, I physically recoil when something like bright and shiny. <laughs> Actually, and a just 3D thought of that as, like I was, my head. as I was saying, I'm like, oh, this is kind of shitty, but it is <laughs> the same physical reaction, not the same emotional one. <laughs> you know what I was going through when I was nearly weeping like John Turturro and Jungle Fever, like quietly, but. Like with dignity is what you were saying, uh, like you when you you got funny big noses coming at you, like with your three D glasses on. That's just here like you are you, just Mike. getting beaten by an old Italian. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of the same thing. Um, yeah, okay, yeah, I can feel like I I've said many times. Uh, I don't know if it's been on a podcast with you, but uh, certainly on. Um, uh, 99 from 99 show do I, I, it's come up like multiple times uh that i i really sort of have a distaste for like true crime podcasts mm -hmm. because i do get that feeling that you're you're talking about where i feel like a tourist uh into other people's pain and their plights and i don't usually find the content that uh is being created there to be particularly like illuminating other than 
that's horrible, and I don't want to be around those horrible people. I don't want to give them uh, any more thoughts, which is why I was such a fan of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, because it turns those uh, animals into jokes, yep. you know, for our own amusement. Um, this is a little different, and I and I liked it a lot more than I thought I would. I'm pretty sure I did watch it when I was a teenager, uh, when it was making its HBO run. Um and maybe the like TV aspect of it. I don't think I ever thought of it as, you know, part, part of the Spike Lee canon. Maybe it's the, the fact that it's a documentary, you know, that sort of thing, which I know he, uh, when the levees broke, which I've never seen mm-hmm. like that, got a lot of praise and was like a sort of a, a big moment for him. Um, at this time though, I don't remember him working in that particular field i think now people would go back and be like oh yeah that's something he he kind of does like to scratch that particular artistic itch uh so it felt very separate from like you know a spike lee joint and it's not (laughs) to be fair to him it's not presented as such like you look at it and it's a film by spike lee um but i i liked the very sort of blue collar basic aspect of it where uh let's not have spike lee you know try to finesse or manipulate the story it it makes it hard to talk about on a podcast because it truly is a talking heads movie but there is like if there is you know a a uh, sense of style or sort of particular craft to it i do think that spike lee either in his research uh his interview style <clears throat> what have you, there is this intimacy where almost immediately, I don't know about you, but you feel like you were just in the living room with these people. Yeah. Uh, and there's some sort of strange comfort level where it doesn't feel so much like uh, the subject and this, this sort of journalist just covering them for their story. It feels like we've just allowed people whose stories historically are not told to sort of put their family appropriately in the history books like this is something that you should be aware of something that you should have been taught about uh and we're usually like malcolm x not to knock that movie but we're used to hearing about the big figures right you know right. someone who's gunned down or someone who gave these speeches or was part of a movement uh we're not used to hearing not only just from the victims but from the the people uh who were close to the victims and have to continue living their normal lives. Like having these four little girls as a symbol is great if it inspires change, which it did to some degree, Sure. but sticking around and seeing, you know, these people now as, as senior citizens talk about a life that was completely wiped out and negated from happening is is hard to sit through, but there is a great deal, great deal of value to me that it's not just a political movie. It is basically these these families grieving and just just letting you know what these people were like that were taken from them. It requires a particular skill set and talent. I mean, it's when we get to the end of this, it would be hard pressed for me to not say that this is like the best film Spike Lee made because of that, because he couldn't be Spike Lee. You know, right. when in making it mm. like, uh, but it's, it, it, you know, I, I had a hard time sitting down, like making the time to like, watch it. Like, what am I going to watch this on my lunch break at work? You know, right. am I going to like pull this up on a tablet? Not really. I mean, you can't really do it. You kind of have to like yeah. make the effort to say, all right, this evening I'm going to like sit with this for a little while. And mm-hmm. so I don't know. I don't know how this one plays now. I don't know if mm. people like stumble across it on a streaming service uh if they're gonna stick with it because it's just like it's just a tough sit to just open with grieving parents and kind of stay with them for you know just an hour and 40 minutes right i think i think there's a couple choices that spike lee makes here that save it from being a true crime type documentary there's maybe two or three times you hear spike lee's voice and it's always him reassuring the people he's talking to like i'm not going to push you if you don't want to talk about it, it's okay. So that lets us in a little bit where it's like, oh, we care about these people. It's not just, oh, these are victims. Let's take a close look. And the other thing is they talk about some of the terrible things that were seen afterwards, like pieces of the building that were lodged in the girl's head. And But they never 
they never leer at that. And I think if you had like a true crime type documentary, it'd be like, here's the pictures of this little girl's body that's battered and broken. And, and it's when they show it, it's very quick. It's a really quick cut. And then they go back. And I really appreciated that because like, that's the thing. And I think we have similar problems with true crime podcasts and true crime films is that there's not a lot of empathy. It's like, look how fucked up this shit is. Look how violent this is. Look how evil this is. Never realizing that like, oh, these are people taken from their families in the prime of their lives, right? And in this, that's what it focuses on. It focuses on the loss and it focuses on like, hey, here's one kind of good thing that happened from this loss. It's not about showing you how terrible it is, but look, look what this spurred, right? Look at the good change that this makes. And it's a nice way to look at this in something that could be just two hours of just being dour and like, look how awful the world is. It's like, no, but look at, look at the positivity that actually came out of this. And some of the, honestly, some of the scariest sequences in this are the interviews with George Wallace, um, like just being completely unaware or purposefully unaware of the effect that he's had and like parading around his black friend. Like here, look, this is my best friend. Everything's fine. <laughs> I, and you're like, I, I, do I think you think anyone actually, believes this? Like, this is horrifying. Well, you're actually quoting him. I'm pretty sure he just says, yeah. look at my black friend. <laughs> yeah. It's like mortifying to watch. And it makes me wonder, like, obviously I don't want them to do this, but part of me wants like a double-sided camera. I just want to see Spike Lee's face when this is happening. You know what I mean? Because he's not known for hiding his emotions, at least in kind of the Hollywood press area and i'm sure he had to like tamp it down but he has to be just looking at him like you what the fuck are you talking about like this man is not your friend this is a man you have hired to stand in front of you almost literally as a shield to all the attacks that are coming from this documentary and it is for me it was really disturbing to watch someone that ignorant and unaware of his surroundings that's the difficult part right like we are as i said we're removing spike lee's voice uh who has you know, he has one of the clearest voices as far as getting into the like auteur theory where it's like okay yeah he is genuinely an auteur he writes produces like edits like it's all over it and so and as you you know you mentioned well she's got to have it you're you're all about his performance there like you know really highlighting him as like the the best actor in that one and strangely in jungle fever too as the uh the man who ruins lives the destroyer of all things as the best friend uh who's even kind of strangely agreeable in that moment where he owns up to the fact he's like that kind of upended your entire existence there (laughs) my bad um so, yeah, you're removing all of that from uh, the documentary process unless – and I mean I don't think this is a subject matter, but you know, there certainly is an alternate path where Spike Lee is doing like his Michael Moore thing where it's like he's more antagonistic and calling people on their shit as like you know a co-star and the sort of interviewing – interviewing is like a theatrical sort of act. Like I know I'm playing it up for the cameras. He could do that. Right. Uh, this is a lot better than that, though. Like, you know, I, I don't, agree. I don't I, need four little girls to be Roger and me. Right. I mean, we already know, like, there's no, <laughs> there's no world in which a sane person is like, uh, but let's, let's really listen and see if, like, it's bad that these four little girls died. Like, this is <laughs> obvious, right? And also, like, if you have someone like Wallace, you just let a racist talk long enough and he's going to say some terrible shit. Like, it's just, like, I don't think a Spike seems to be aware that he doesn't have to push anybody here, you know, and he knows that if he talks to if he talks to the family members long enough, some real emotion is going to come up, you know, and there's a really moving scene, at least to me, with one of the women he's interviewing and he and this is where he had to, like, prod her a little bit. And she's talking about how sometimes, yeah, she does get angry and it leaks out a little bit. And you hear him just kind of asking, like, how does it leak out? Because she clearly wanted to shut that down. Because I think there is a tendency, and I think this is especially true of white filmmakers talking about black stories where you deify victims of racial violence. And like, oh, they're so forgiving, and look, they've moved on with their lives. And it was kind of nice to hear somebody say, like, no, even, she said it in a good-natured way. But she was like, yeah, I'm still pissed. I'm still angry about this. You don't, there are things 
that happen in life like this that you just don't get over. And it has to be okay that you don't get over it. Like you move on in some ways, the, you know, the, in terms of civil rights, it did push things forward, but that doesn't mean it's a good thing it happened. Something good came out of something terrible, but this is still terrible. Four little girls still died. These, these kids were ripped from their families because of the color of their skin. Like, let's not mince words. That's exactly why they died. And for him to kind of pinpoint that and not make people out to be saints and not make and not make them in a way where you feel like, oh, well, everything's OK. I feel better about this now. Something good came out of this. It's like, no, this is still awful. Well, and that's you know saying nothing of all the other horrible acts leading up to, yep. you know, this this event in 1963 uh, that it took this, which I mean, you're. You're seeing it now in a different different respect, uh, removing the race element, but um, you know the very fact that we can have uh, you know kids uh, at an elementary school be shot up and still yep. still can't be moved to get our act together as right. far as when it comes to gun control. Um, it is strange to say that back then it's like oh at least you know children being terrorized and killed would move politicians to finally finally do something not you know <laughs> do the minimum amount uh to try to sort of wipe the blood of children uh off their hands uh we don't have that have that now right so uh thanks dave uh really <laughs> depressing selection um, you're welcome although <laughs> although as much as i love uh you know bamboozled is like the one that got away mm. I still probably don't want to talk about the movie about blackface. I don't know if yeah, I want to touch that. <laughs> so the other thing that really, it surprised me how much it affected me as I'm watching this. Cause it's something I don't think I ever thought about. Like we've all, well, we all like anyone who's ever opened a history book about the United States knows about Jim Crow laws. knows about, you know, colored water fountains and white water fountains. And I think something that gets lost in that, when you hear that, you're like, Oh, that's terrible. That's the worst thing ever. But you don't think about the fact that parents have to explain that to their children. Because kids don't get that, right? They're just like, I'm thirsty. There's a water fountain right there. I'm going to drink. And the pain in these adults' faces as they're looking back and having to explain to their kids, no, you can't have that. I'll explain why when we get home. And like, just imagine having that conversation with a child, like teaching them. And you have to in that time, but teaching them at a young age, like you're not equal. In the country's eyes, you're not good enough to drink that water. Like that was heartbreaking for me. And it, and it's a perspective that I never really even considered. Like you just consider like, oh, it's really terrible and it's terrible across the board. But to have to explain that to a child whose brain isn't formed yet and they want what they want. Kids are like id personified, right? Just give me the thing that I want. No self-control. And these children being forced to grow up at like five years old and understand this and make these decisions so they don't die or so their parents aren't beaten in the streets like i was just it just kind of blew my mind like just the the levels of it like you know you know the full picture but when you delve a little bit deeper it's like oh man this is even more messed up than i even comprehended when i walked into this movie yeah it goes back to um something that spike lee kind of explored in jungle fever as far as the limit the limit uh, that parents have in protecting their children, and that particular right. one you you saw uh, crack addiction, but also it was clearly something that was on the the Wesley Snipes character's mind. As far as um, as much as you can kind of take care of your own, that there are certain things that you can't control as far as the outside forces, right. and certainly in this case, uh, that that particular sequence where the father is talking about. Um, you know, it, it was almost this shameful thing for him. Like yeah. he's having explained, like, here's what me and like my generation or, you know, previous generations could not provide for you. We're like, we're sort of presenting this world that has some really awful things in it. And we've not been able to work that out. Like we've not been able to give you that life that we want to give you just yet and are not going to be able to. Right. Um, that, yeah, it is. That was that was pretty heartbreaking to, to watch that, that particular sequence. And it's, it is, it catches you off guard, which is strange to say, cause you know, going into this, 
that this is going to be a film about four young girls whose lives were taken. Uh, they even having that small amount of heartbreak just when they were here for that short amount of time. Uh, I think the father even says that that was like equal to the pain he felt of like losing his daughter was basically having to like sort of, uh, you know, break her heart. Like as far as when she was living on this, on this earth, as far as here's, here's how the world actually is. Uh, yeah. As an outsider, it's just, it is something you don't, I, I never would have, it never crossed my mind. Uh, that if I was a black child, like when I hear about that as a white kid, I'm like, well, that's stupid. Why was it ever like that? Right. But I never, I never once entertained or thought about the notion that if I was black, that it would have to be explained to me right. as a, a sort of a defense mechanism as far as, you know, this is how you have to live just so you can survive physically. Like if right. you cross these lines. So yeah, very, uh, it's very strange, like, how he was able to weave in and really puts a heavy emphasis on the sort of slice of life aspect of it, knowing that we're going to build to this like historical and tragic act. Yeah. And it's the other thing that I found pretty interesting is the kind of the delineation he makes between the slice of life, the people like kind of on the ground level and then the, the preachers kind of coming in and leading you know, and leading the kind of civil rights activism and how there is a difference between them. Like a lot of the, a lot of the people who lived in that area kind of look at them like, who is this crazy man? Like going out in the streets saying these things, like, we can't say that, like, we're going to get hurt. And I like the fact that, cause sometimes again, we kind of talked, I've talked about this a lot, but like, there's this deification of people like, oh, everyone believed in this one thing. And you can see in their eyes and the way they talk that even looking back now, when things have changed a little bit, they're always like, these men are crazy. Like, I'm not putting myself out there, you know, I'm not going to do that. So I liked that we got, because a lot of times the only, the only person talked about when you talk about civil rights in the sixties, a lot of times it's just MLK. And it was nice, I think also to get these other personalities involved and get like a broader picture of it. Cause I think also as, as white people, like we have deified Martin Luther King, like, oh, the, you know, nonviolence and, you know peace and like stood up to you know, spoke truth to power well, and it's just like there's other people involved here it's not well, just look, one man certainly as, as white people who were you know um on the the oppressing side of things mm-hmm. uh yeah you're probably far more comfortable with the idea of right. uh peaceful conversation yeah, we like him <laughs> yeah exactly yeah <laughs> Yeah, but I was glad we got some of those other personalities in there because I think as as white people watching this, because I think a lot of white people did watch this. It was on HBO. You know, it got all the awards consideration. It was nice to get some of the some of the gray there. It wasn't just like, oh, we're just going to talk about these people that you already know about. And, you know, like you go on Twitter and you have white people quoting Martin Luther King to the end of time, not understanding what was going on and the other things that he said. It wasn't all these just sound bites. So it was nice to get a real picture of what was going on in that area at that time that I think sometimes gets left behind because we don't focus on the the people who are living there. We focus on we focus on MLK for good reason. He was a great leader, but there's a lot more going on there. And it was nice to Dave, it was nice to get that. Have you ever had the balls to quote Martin no, Luther King in any abs- capacity? Like, no, like absolutely not. But but people never, do never it's cross incredible. my mind. <laughs> it is incredible. Like I have seen white people quote MLK to black people to defeat their points, and I'm like, <laughs> like even if you were right, which you're not, please shut the <laughs> fuck up. Like we as white people already look bad in this circumstance. You are somehow making us look worse. <laughs> like please just stop talking. Like, See, I think you are, Dave, because uh, you program uh, the Spike Lee month, uh, which I think even when you announced it. Our mutual friend uh, Derek uh, responded <laughs> with the don't GIF fuck it up. He said, "Don't don't fuck it up, man." <laughs> I'm pretty damn skippy that uh, no one sent that reaction when you announced Nancy Myers. Like, don't <laughs> fuck this up. Like there was no pressure. It's all fun. Absolutely. Uh, no, not not Dave's months. That's Never right. Never fun. I take a risk, Mike. <laughs> this, this is Nancy Myers shit. <laughs> Likely. Yeah. Let's go. You cut that out. All right. You don't believe that. <laughs> All right. So we are going to take a break. Uh, I think we've, you know, kind of exhausted our own perspective on poor little girls. So let's not ruin this. Uh, so we'll take a break and then we'll come back and talk about the game. 
watching it kind of reminded me why it's not one of my favorites. I think that the information that's presented into it isn't new. The story, like the premise, I think is really interesting, but the way that it's executed, I'm not sure that I necessarily got anything from it. It's more like a collection of really cool, pretty shots and moments that I do love, but as a story, it, it didn't really come together for me. I love he got game. And I think Spike took a huge risk in getting Ray Allen to play the lead. And I think the the risk paid off. You know, I, I understand why Spike didn't get an actor to play Jesus Shuttlesworth and then teach him how to play basketball. I think his instinct was right to get a basketball player and then work with him to be a to become an actor. I don't know. I loved it. I I love that it was um I love the way that Coney Island was portrayed. I love that it was a father-son story. And we don't really get those stories with black men. And, you know, and it's, it's, it, it questions and explores black men. So now we're back to talk about He Got Game, um, which I think was his very next film after Four Little Girls. So we're not skipping anything. No skips. Time. No All skips. Right. Um, so this is a movie, as I remember, like, I remember really liking it when I saw it, but it didn't get the greatest critical reaction. There was there was a little bit of, a little bit of pushback to this movie. And you had kind of mentioned, I think, in a previous episode about a scene with a prostitute uh, that didn't get the best reaction. Also... As I recall, there are two porn stars cast in this movie uh, that show up at his uh, when he's visiting a college. Um, so there was a little bit of pushback to this. And also, I think, pushback to him casting a non-actor in a lead role, casting Ray Allen, an actual NBA basketball player, to play Jesus Shuttlesworth. Um, and I, I'm always surprised when I watch this movie at how good Ray Allen is in this movie. I think, like, I don't think he asks as much of him as he does... Obviously, Denzel, a seasoned actor, someone he trusts with the material. But I think when, whenever you cast a, a professional athlete, uh, which, you know, I guess as we're recording this now, Uncut Gems is coming out or will be out by this point. And Kevin Garnett is in that movie and he's getting good reviews. But there's always a risk because you never really know what you're going to get. So what did you think of his performance in particular in the movie in general? Uh, I mean, I think it certainly works better if you're going to have legitimate sequences and uh, one in particular that's a extremely dramatic you know the 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 final game between wow, father and son mm-hmm. where you have uh you know this this you know the jesus-like figure on the court not just his name but the way they highlight and praise him throughout that he's basically the second coming of uh jordan uh you probably don't want an actor uh trying to or trying to cut around the fact that they're not that great or not that comfortable in basketball and not to knock Ray Allen here, but he's, he's playing to some degree a a version of probably what he went through as far as the recruiting process, as far as, or, or, uh, you know, the star fuckers, you know, the, the people start clinging on to, you know, cause he would have been talented enough where people would know he's going places. And now he did, um, didn't have issue with that. The porn star element. I, I don't know why anyone would have issue with <laughs> a sequence where the only issue I would have with it is uh, if Mr. Lee was trying to pass off these two women as legitimate uh, college students because they yeah. do not look age appropriate to be, no. uh, uh, you know, in a uh, even if they're like a fifth year senior type deal, uh, <laughs> they look quite a bit older. Yeah. I just assumed that was a part of the uh, sort of seedier recruiting process that was being put on the this sort of uh, performance art. What would you call it, Dave? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's transactional in nature for sure yes i just had to look it up the two porn stars by the way are chasey lane and jill kelly uh so i Spike want was to just tell like... our listeners uh dave did not have to look that up he was just faking it he knew exactly who they were yes obviously um, yeah uh i i i brought up the uh and then I think our first episode on Spike Lee, uh, that the most common complaint I hear about this film is the relationship that Denzel's character has as he's, um, 
you know, a very strange um, situation he finds himself in where the governor through like sort of backdoor channels is going to allow him to be out. I don't know if that makes any sense, recruit. but like, I'm, you know, I think that's one of those moments where I'm like, all right, I just got to go with it. I got to. Yeah. Like, if, you, if you go on the Wikipedia page, there's apparently like a quote from like ESPN, ESPN's review of the movie, which why the fuck you would give a shit about that. Uh, talking about all the the fantastical elements of this, this would never happen. Uh, they don't even mention uh, Denzel's father being allowed out of prison for a week. Uh, I think the hardest thing for me to get over is um, everyone there is aware why he's in prison, right? For mm-hmm. killing his son's mother and his wife accidentally. I mean, accidentally. But that is why he's in prison. Yep. They – Probably should have some inkling that uh, the son is not going to be too receptive to right. his father's wishes. So that seems like the wrong person. Yeah, you you break him out of prison to tell him uh, to you know to to play the opposite game and reverse psychology. Like go to this school when really the governor wants him to go to another school because right. you would right. think that would yes. help. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, this one I don't think. Uh, yeah, it was not a financial success. Um, like it, I don't even think it recouped its uh its budget uh which is strange because well i remember this one when it came out as feeling like we got a big movie star it's a sports movie it was coming out in the summer of 1998 this one should have been you know more palatable to mainstream Mm -hmm. audiences maybe they were like you on you know your respective fainting couches like oh porn stars (laughs) in this we can't see this uh I didn't know I was gonna have to defend that. Like, I didn't, like that was not in my head. Only I'm on like, only when you work up. with me will you have to defend porn stars. <laughs> yeah, I don't get that. Yeah, um, but yeah, this. I mean, it feels like a populist movie in subject matter, father son sports story. Right. Right. We've seen them a thousand times, um, and I think it was in my skewed world. It was always much more elevated than apparently what it is. Where I thought right. I thought this is one of the spike lee's greats and every time i come back to it i i'm not like moved at all off that position i think everyone else is an idiot everyone but me is an idiot (laughs) that should just be you were nodding along and then that caught you off guard like wait a minute (laughs) i will say i think this might be i don't know if this is true but it's one of them this might be my favorite denzel performance i really like like there's a lot he's doing here vocally that's really different from uh from a lot of his work. There's like a subtle there's some subtle little accent work going on here and in a lot of movies he plays characters that you immediately root for, right? He plays a lot of protagonists. He is a movie star. But not in this movie. Like you you understand why Jesus is looking at him like get the fuck out of my house. Like especially as the story kind of unfurls, you're kind of like, "Oh man, this guy was not nice to his kid, even before the accidental death of his wife. Like, it's not like he was like, oh, yeah, what a great guy. He just had one bad day. Like, he was really competitive and he really pushed his son. And they do kind of play around with that. Like, in a lot of ways, that's the reason his son has become so successful. But he's also, like, lacked a father figure and lacked a mother figure because of his father. And it's had to grow up really quickly and it's kind of damaged him a lot. And like again, uh, not a lot of great uh, female characters uh, in a Spike Lee movie. Uh, you got, uh, you know, yeah. Rosario Dawson, who seems really nice at the beginning, but then like not only like not only betrays him, but like at the end, just basically just gives him a final fuck you. Like you're gonna leave me anyway. Like it is a vicious, vicious scene. Did you miss me, Jesus? Of course, I miss you. That's all I did was talk about Lala. Meet any women out there at the parties and dorms and stuff like that? Did I meet any women? There were women. It's college. There were women all over the place. I mean, there's women on the floor in the dorms, women in the classroom. There's a women's basketball team, women's track team. There's women all over the place. Of course, I met women. I mean, I got introduced to everybody. I mean, I said hello. That's about it. So, did you fuck anybody while you out there? Hell no. Don't think I haven't heard stories about these white college bitches. Me with a white bitch? Yeah, they got them all lined up as soon as you get there, waiting to suck your dick. If my mother ever saw me with a white bitch, she's spinning her grave. Then she's spinning. She's turning over and over and over. Look, don't be talking about my mother, all right? Please. 
I... DeAndre and Dom need to know something. <laughs> God damn. I should have known. What? This whole world is bugged. <laughs> and you're in it with them, huh? You're in cahoots with DeAndre and Dom. Don't even lie. Tell me the truth. I, I knew that ever since I left that house. Ever since I walked in the house, matter of fact. And why shouldn't I get paid? Huh? Why shouldn't Lila get something out of this? Everybody else is. I can't even believe this. I really can't. Will you believe it? I believed you when you said that you would never leave me, Jesus. And I believed you when you asked me to get that abortion. I, when you begged me to get that abortion, I believed you. We both agreed on that. I wanted that child. I wanted to know what you think because it's What important. I think? A baby's going to hurt my chance of going to college. I mean, the top schools, they're going to be scared away. Damn. I'm too young. You're too young. We ain't ready for nothing like this. How do we get pregnant anyway? Let's talk about that. Are you sure? I'm not getting pregnant now, Bobby. I just want to feel you inside of me. Without a Jimmy. I can't get pregnant, Poppy. I want to feel you inside of me, Poppy. Isn't that what you said? Well, Lala has to look out for herself. Lala played herself. That's what she did. No thing I'll know about that, that DeAndre kid either. Did you fuck him? So what? At least I can admit it. Oh, so it makes it all right that you admit it. Go no, fuck I'm not saying guys. it's all right. I'm just saying that there's a reason and I can at least admit it. That don't mean shit. That don't mean shit. But you know what? Go if it don't matter, if it don't matter, then why are you stressing? You're going to wake up a whole bunch of angry Who black gives folks? a fuck? I don't give a fuck. You know you're going to leave me. This is going to last while you're off in college for a year where this is going to last. You want me to live in La La Lands? Is that what it is? How do you know, huh? You tell how me do how I you know? know? Because I know because I ain't stupid. What, you went to a fortune teller or something? You don't know shit. You don't know what's going to happen. Jesus, I have read all about those high school sweethearts who get left behind. I have seen that movie many a time. I told them nobody can tell Jesus what to do, but they fucking insisted. If they were stupid enough to give me money to use some kind of influence over you that I never possessed, so be it. They put the money in my hand with the promise of more to come. Just like everybody else. Jesus, you have no problems. Your life is set. You got no worries. I have nothing. Yeah, right. You're going to honestly lie dead to my face and tell me that it was going to be forever and you were going to take care of me and that I had no problems and no worries? That, that wasn't hard for me. Oh, my God. Come here. That's it. Come here. Oh, the so only have a very different opinion there. I thought that was a pretty cool breakup. Like, she calls it what it is. Like, hey, Ed, because, you know, you're, you're taking up for, uh, you know, young Jesus Shuttlesworth here. You did mention the two porn stars, right? Like he is, yes. he, he's not, <laughs> he's not without fault. That here. is a really uh, interesting both, scene because they're both really hurt in some ways, but like they're both wrong. <laughs> like, like any well, good okay, relationship. They're both far too cynical for their age, which yes. is probably like the tragedy and the influence, I guess, of the money and the sports culture where we elevate teenagers, uh, in particular, you know, teenagers who have bodies of of men at that point, and mm-hmm. so we project all of this, all of this <laughs> financial upheaval in their lives, and we tell them you're going to have this, and your life is going to be changed. Uh, but don't fuck it up. Like every single person is telling this teenage kid, "Hey, don't fuck this up." Because, Biggest decision in your life. <laughs> uh, we're we're counting on you. Like, right. um, you have uh, Radio Rahim here in a great yeah. <laughs> role, who's asking for his taste, just a taste. <laughs> he's, At least he's, he's direct. Uncle that's got I like, I like that yeah. he's direct. Like, just give me. <laughs> that's the whole movie. I was wondering if you thought the performance suffers at all because Ray Allen at this point is an adult. Like, do you think he still reads as a high school student and does the movie suffer at all because of that? Not saying I think so. it's a bad performance, but just like he's, what is, he's gotta be like in his late twenties, early thirties by the time this movie comes out. So, uh, 
Or maybe yeah, I don't know how old he was. Yeah, he would have been like 22, 23. I guess. Right. 22, I think, probably when it was filmed. Um, All right, so he's playing five years younger than he is. That's... That's nothing in like, you know, Scream or like Dawson's Creek territory where it's like, you know, we got like balding, like 30 somethings, like still, you know. <laughs> so um, I, I just assume like someone like is that like athletically and physically sort of gifted. Sure. They look, you know, they look much older than their, uh, what is it's that, true. Booger here? Like oh, the, uh, the the short cousin. Um, Booger who's like so, easy, was... so easily won over. You look like you grew. <gasps> really? <laughs> I felt like Spike Lee was sort of working through some of his own hangups there with a character who was like <laughs> ten years so ago short he would have and... he would have been playing that role hundred percent yeah like... <laughs> um all right go back to Lala the breakup okay I actually think it's a pretty adult breakup for two characters who are trying to play act as adults mm. uh far sooner than they should uh you know they should be you know, still in the thralls and the sort of fantasy of like this high school sweetheart type thing. But she has been coached and he has been coached uh, that we're going to we're going to skip a bunch of steps and we're going to set them up for this life altering and almost life ending vast amount of riches. Like, cause as soon as Jesus becomes this thing, that's like all he'll ever be. Right. Cause he'll never have to work again, but he will always be, the great basketball player from Coney Island and that's it. And she is, you know, she's not setting up her ducks in a row in the kindest way, but I'm not going to falter for, you know, for looking out into the horizon and not seeing herself in the picture. I think that's a legitimate concern. So you, you, you think it's a vicious attack. She gives him a kiss, a final kiss on the cheek you're taking it like a Godfather type thing, like it's a kiss of death. I'm just like, well, that was nice. It that is. Was, it is. Really I look at it as a Seinfeld thing, Dave. Where I'm like the Costanza, where I'm like, just go ahead and end it with me. Like if you just do all the heavy lifting, then good. You walk away. That's one less thing I have to deal with. It is interesting because every time I watch this movie, like even though I kind of I know what's coming in that scene, it is always kind of surprising because it feels like a scene in a, a different movie that would be drawn out and that she would try to convince him like, no, no, that's she like never, she never really denies it. <laughs> She's like, yeah. And what do you think you were doing on these <laughs> recruiting trips? And I was like, oh, well, that's not, that's not the way I thought this was going to go. <laughs> like it is a really, I think I find it vicious, but I also think it's very well written. And very well performed like that scene really does work because it really takes you by surprise because you have I think in movies and in life you have this specific idea in mind at how breakups work and like how people don't really tell the truth and they'll deny 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 until it's too late whereas these two are just kind of like all right well let's be honest because I guess it is kind of like when you know it's over like when you have that fight where you're just like I'm gonna say everything I think fuck her fuck him like let's just Let's go at it, you know? And it's just like, it is a rough, rough scene to watch because they're both, they're both pretty vicious in that scene. Look, people are eating that shit up with the marriage story on Netflix. Like, this is, this is a much better, much better version of this. And it's, I agree. You know, it's uh, efficient. It's quick. You know, yeah. we don't, we don't, that, if Bombac would make this a fucking three hour movie with this one scene on a park bench, you know? It's true. <laughs> you're, you're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I do find myself. Uh, you had brought up the whole the whole scene that people push back against the scene with him and Dakota, and I do like as I watch this movie, I have these ones like, is this relation? Is any of this necessary? Like, I get that you want him to have some level of happiness, some level of tenderness in his life, but it does all feel very forced. Like, it's just kind of like you know that he's he's been seen as a bad guy. He, accidentally killed his wife he's been in prison his son hates him his daughter's a little iffy about him so like you got to have him save somebody i guess and it does feel it feels a little forced to me like i don't i don't mind the performances in that scene it's kind of a thankless part for uh mila jovovich but i don't mind it but it does feel like we got to shoehorn in this romance here maybe i i mean it's I don't want to <laughs> liken uh, an actual female fully formed human to like uh, like a cat in a tree or like a kicked dog that he saves. But it does have that element mm -hmm. where it's like, all right, let's show 
that Denzel's character is not just this stern man who is trying to save his own neck from something he may deserve. You know, he did accidentally, but he did take, you know, his wife's life. And it feels like it's sort of in there to make you more comfortable with him uh, as a man who, without looking out for his own end, can care for another human uh, mm-hmm. going through something. She is an abused woman next door. It would be hard for him to ignore that. Like, so right. once you introduce that element, you got to do something with to this. have him. <laughs> yeah. You, you can't have him just like, well, time to get back to basketball. Like I'm going to go talk to my son. I'm going to dribble just to drown out the noise of this woman <laughs> uh, having a horrific life. None of that. Um, I don't have as much of an issue with it. Cause you mentioned the tenderness aspect of it because it, it is a strangely – I think it's like Spike Lee's warmest film as far as his mm. view of humanity. Could be. Maybe it's because it's just totally relegated to that sports world and he doesn't deviate too much from it. Like there's obviously like a financial system in place that is going to reap the benefits of young black men here and coming from situations that are not financially advantageous. But – all that being said, I I agree with you. I, I think this is Denzel's best performance because I don't know if he's given grade A material as far as a character because it is so one note. It's a man on a mission movie, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. it's like go do this, and for the most part, the ticking clock. He just fails. Yep, he just mm-hmm. fails every scene. Like, and I I'm never convinced that, and I've seen this a number of times. I'm still never convinced that he's going to be able to talk his son into doing anything, and he really doesn't like it's, okay. it's nothing about what he says or does. There's a great moment where he attempts to, uh, to buy, um, his daughter, like a doll, like in, out on Coney Island. And he has like, what is supposed to be like one final talk with his son. And he just sort of latches onto him. Like he's like, he's a man who's about to like fall over yep. if he doesn't like latch onto his son. And that, it's a weird physical embrace. that's just more than a hug. It's like, if he doesn't do that, then he's just going to drift away into nothing. Like he's yep. just going to be erased from this planet. And Spike Lee plays it differently in that Ray Allen doesn't reciprocate in the okay. slightest. And even he doesn't the, really push him away, like, but he doesn't give anything either. It's like hugging a rock. Like just, yeah. And you see, you actually do literally see Denzel do that when he goes to his wife's grave and he's just clinging on. He's clinging on something that he can never get back. Brutal. Um, yeah, like there, there are moments here that I just, I just adore with the, the sort of father son aspect of it. Um, it's a strange movie where it's a, like a true two hander. And I think most directors would have just used the Jesus character as, the the heft of the plot and not paid as much attention to his sort of internal life. The life he's built for himself is like a father figure to his younger sister, mm-hmm. the whole relationship with Lala, his relationship with his friends in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I think they would have just made it the Denzel story. And the only scenes you would have seen with the son was, would be when he drops mm-hmm. in. Right. Uh, Cause it's, it's strange to see a genuine movie star have a thankless part in that, he's not efficient in the slightest. Like he doesn't accomplish really any of his goals, not by his own doing. Right. And it's genuine growth on his son's part that changes mm-hmm. his mind. It's nothing about his, his father. Like, no, there's no speech that he gives that, that clicks for him. I think it's right. after his father's taken away, you see the wheels turning in his son, son's mind, which is unfortunate because that's, <laughs> I guess what allows the, the powers that be to be like, well, technically, you right. didn't do this, so we don't have to let Fuck you out of yeah. prison. <laughs> you know, maybe Jesus should have been, no, no, my dad uh, my dad did this, which I guess he does in that speech in the end, right? He yeah. mentions his father, which yeah. should have been code for, like, you know, the Shawshank release there, but yeah. didn't, But he didn't, didn't sign that piece of paper that his dad left, so not good enough for this. Did you have an though. issue with the final scene, which is very jungle fever esque to me, where it's like this strange sort of magical realism sort of ending. Like in that film, it feels like Wesley Snipes runs into his own daughter, mm-hmm. like in his mind, like years down the road. Uh, and in this one, you have the, the basketball element where uh, Denzel back in prison, like has this act of rebellion that somehow connects to his son. Like it's like it breaks through like the fourth wall. See in that version, I really liked it. I don't, I don't know why, like I had such a problem with it in his other movie, but here 
it really worked because it it connected the fact that he had he had finally got through to his son right and they do have a connection even if they never see each other again even if that guard shoots him as he keeps threatening to they had their connection and he's been at least partially forgiven for the terrible things that he's done and that's good enough you know so i like that and i like that they the film itself connects those two, even though they are apart by great distance. And in a weird way, despite the fact that he's locked behind walls, he's now closer to his son than he's ever been, even before the death of his mother. So I like that, that physical manifestation of that connection. Um, and I think to me, the best scene in the movie, and I really would like to do some research and see how this scene was done. The one-on-one scene that you brought up, because there's very little dialogue. I mean, there's trash talking, but there's not like a great deal of back and forth between them that is pointed, right? That is like, oh, Spike Lee wrote this. These are the lines you have to hit. It kind of reminded me of um, a more recent movie, of Foxcatcher, um, which is a movie I didn't love. But there's a scene in it in the very beginning with the two brothers wrestling. And you kind of learn everything about their history and everything about their characters through their physical actions. And that's what this one-on-one scene felt like to, felt like to me, where you you... Because it's interesting because it is, because Denzel is the movie star. The first time I watched it, there's a part of me that's like, oh, maybe Denzel's going to win here and he's going to have to sign the paper. Like this is, because that's the setup, right? Like one last game for the signature and that's it. And then about like, I don't know, a third of the way through that scene, you're like, what am I, a fucking idiot? This 18 year old in the prime prime (laughs) of his life, one of the best basketball, basketball players in the country, probably the best. And this aging 40-year-old man with knee braces, like, this is not going to end well for uh, for Jake here, you know? And so I like the way it kind of also, sets up uh, that it sets up that movie star thing and then immediately rips it away. Because you could just see the way they're interacting that, like, oh, you are way out of your league now. It's been too long. Well, also, you know, young Jesus uh, did, apparently did not learn how to shoot from his father. As far as their form, he's got better Denzel form. He's got that. He's got that behind the back yeah. of your head. Like I kept uh, watching that when they had the scene where he's in jail shooting, and I'm like, "Oh man, I hope you did not I teach mean, Jesus that." that is, <laughs> need a quicker yeah, release fair, in today's Denzel, game. <laughs> he uh, he does make a good number of those shots, but uh, as far as defending him, I think yeah, you've got a lot, of, a lot clever, of time. Clever editing going on there. <laughs> I'll say this for him then. It is a cinematic shot. It is more fun to watch than Ray Allen's mechanical, yep. like perfect. robotic, perfect yes. stroke yes. he has. Um, yeah, I, I'm like you. I wonder if uh, Spike Lee didn't have that necessarily scripted uh, as far as the game, if they uh, just wanted them to play it out. Because right. obviously Ray Allen's going to – you can count on it's like, well, uh, we know Jesus is going to win because it's Ray Allen versus Denzel Washington. The like 10-time uh, all-star, I think he's probably going to win. <laughs> I do wonder if uh, every uh, point that uh, the father gets Jake, if that was just Denzel like legitimately scoring. So it's like, well, just leave it in because we know it's going to be a blowout. But if he earns one, the movie star gets to keep it. Let him have it in the narrative. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't know. Do you hear about this one? Like on, uh, you know, do you in film Twitter circles? Is this one talked about with any sort of reappraisal, any sort of reverence? Dave is no, saying no. Absolutely Dave not. Is saying absolutely not. Wow. Okay. It's one that That's I depressing. never hear mentioned, and it does make me wonder. How can I say this nicely? I can't, so I'm just going to say it. Film Twitter is full of fucking nerds who don't watch sports, and I wonder. Uh, the sports element, you, huh? You know what I mean? Okay. Like, so I think there's a lack of connection there. Whereas like people like you and me, more well-rounded people who both watch movies and watch <laughs> sports can actually understand what's going on here. Because I think if you're raised around sports and you watch a lot of ESPN, you know about kind of dirty dealings that go on uh, as far as getting people to commit to certain colleges. Um, and of course, there is there's some overkill here with the whole like, you know, get out of prison for three days and get him to sign this piece of paper. It is very over the top. And I don't think anything like that has ever happened because it's so drastic, but there are, there is a lot of underhanded dealings going on. And I think Spike Lee manages to capture that feeling. Um, that is a very real thing. Um, uh, but I do wonder if it's harder to access for people who don't watch basketball or don't watch sports and aren't interested in sports. You know, I think the Spike's love for basketball really does come through in this movie and it's different from, say, a movie like Moneyball, which I think is really accessible 
for, and I think that's the second time I've gone into a movie from that same director because he also directed Foxcatcher. But that's a movie that's accessible for people outside of baseball, right? Whereas this, I, I think maybe you need to have some sort of connection and love for the game of basketball to really dive into this. But so, yeah, I don't see a lot of reappraisal of this one. 80%, 81% actually on Rotten Tomatoes. So not, uh, critically, at least the misfire that I, I thought, uh, maybe I'm just blaming critics for not pushing this, uh, obvious sort of box office hit that I thought it should I mean, have been. Roger Ebert, though, said it was his best since Malcolm X. So there's a pretty big voice that, uh, was a fan of it. Well, Malcolm X was. You like how that... I worked that in when Wait, it agrees with the me? The best since Malcolm X. That's like not that long. <laughs> it's not that long well, before what this. you got there. You got four little girls, which, you know, was right for you. You got the uh, clockers was probably the biggest one in between. Yeah. Yeah. Crooklyn. Yeah. It's a lot of stuff Girl we six. skipped. Look, yeah. Roger Ebert is agreeing with us. That's right. And That's he's good. also agreeing that we should have skipped four little girls. <laughs> but I will say that, like, yes, it got an 81 on Rotten Tomatoes. But if you look at, like, Metacritic, it's an average score of, like, 63. So it's, like, kind of just barely above average. So don't I bring think, that nerd shit in I'm here. Just saying, I don't I th- I'm just saying originally you were right in thinking that like this wasn't like championed, right? I like, see how you try to work it back around. Yeah. You, you, you pit right, me Mike. against myself <laughs> here. I don't like that. <laughs> this is the ultimate which lie did I tell. You disagreed with yourself <laughs> yeah. within an hour. That's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> this movie's great. Uh, Denzel is great. Uh, this is one – this is probably the Spike Lee movie – I revisit the most on its own because uh, I do I I do like sports movies and I consider it one of the best. So it it is I'm, I don't want to say this is not a Spike Lee joint. It very much is, uh, but it does kind of uh, sit outside of some of his normal I guess Spike Lee uh, trappings. I guess mm-hmm. uh, I th- I think that the fame element is probably a little bit different. You know, he usually is proudly a little more grounded as far as his characters. Um, and this one is defiantly a larger than life personality and all of the sort of leeches, uh, that he's surrounded by. Um, I think we'll have one more coming up that I've rewatched a number of times, which is very different. Uh, a bank heist movie is yeah. one that, uh, yeah. I also watch quite a bit. So, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to steer people thinking that this is just like entertainment puff piece, though, because it's pretty heavy. It's pretty heavy, it even though I think that it should have been a mainstream hit. Uh, there's still a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of drama to mine here. Um, the only change I would make, I'm keeping the porn stars, uh, is I do <laughs> think that uh, some of the... <laughs> I'm pro pro sex worker, Dave. Unlike you, uh, conservative out in California. Again, uh, see, again, you are negating yourself in the same episode earlier. It's like, David didn't have to look that up. And now it's like, Dave hates porn stars. <laughs> you got to pick one, man. Am I a, am I a pervert or do I hate, do I hate porn? Which one is it? Come on. Strangely yeah. both. <laughs> I'm gifted just in that way. Yourself. <laughs> well, that is not incorrect. <laughs> I, I'm saying the only thing that I would have paired back on uh, as far as the celebrity cameos, uh, and I didn't know they were celebrities, but Dave did, well-versed in their <laughs> filmography. Uh, <laughs> you go straight to hell. <laughs> would have been the college coaches and the NBA players like, yeah. sort of hyping up. It's a little uh, much. I felt like that it's... went on. Uh, you know, Spike called in some favors and then probably didn't want to cut yeah. people left and right. Yeah, John so, Thompson, uh, Jordan. That was a little much. Yeah. You could like yeah. cut that in half and it would be totally fine. You don't need yeah. everybody. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And I will just end by saying um, this is the movie that I wish Denzel had won his Oscar for. I think we'd live in a better oh, world if he got okay. an Oscar for this and not for Training Day. So there it is. Who, who won in 1998? Who, who was the, the best for that particular all right, let's find out. Oh, God. If it's who I think it is, I'm going to be so annoyed. Because I think it's Roberta Benigni. Yep, Roberta Benigni, Life is Beautiful. Uh, Ooh. Also Ooh. also nominated Tom Hanks from Saving Private Ryan, Ian McKellen from Gods and Monsters, Nick Knowlton from Affliction, and Edward Norton from American History X. So some good choices in there. A real rough winner. That is... Ooh. I'm I'm guessing that uh, you would have despised. Uh, you probably have Benini over Edward Norton because you despise Edward Norton so much. No, uh, that no. you wouldn't even give him that. No, I would keep Edward Norton as a as a nominee for sure. 
Um, I haven't seen Affliction, but the other the other three are really good nominees. But I think Denzel's performance here is better than each and every one of them. So I would love Nick uh, Nick Nolte was uh, very good in Affliction. I would have been I would have been happy with uh, him, Hanks, uh, or Norton. I don't think I've seen Gods and Monsters, but I like it's Ian McKellen. So yeah, every single one of them would have been yeah, fine with me. This is the year of Life is Beautiful and Shakespeare in Love. Just uh, just all the white people. Just put them all in one place and uh, give them all the awards. So this this we have this year we have to thank for Gwyneth Paltrow Oscar winner. That's that's rough. So uh, be a better Are you world. On goop now. Yeah, that's the right. Creator of Goop. <laughs> that's right. Uh, be a, don't, it doesn't matter. She won't remember the movie she's in anyway, apparently. God bless her. Um, so yeah, Denzel should have won this year. It's unfortunate he didn't. But, uh, our next episode, uh, we will be covering a movie Mike loves and has covered, uh, on another podcast. We'll be covering Summer of Sam. Oh, God. Uh, Skipping Bamboozled and then moving right on to 25th Hour, starring Edward Norton, as we talked about. Your favorite. That's right. Great. Can't wait for that. Little Eddie Norton. So much negativity. That's right. All right. So um, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, follow us at at DirectedByPod and donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash a podcast directed.